One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Alice Elliott Dark, author of the novel Fellowship Point. I really felt I learned so much about writing from writing this book about how to create and sustain a central argument and to sort of make choices about what's going to stay and what's going to leave based on that. We'll be back with Alice Elliott Dark after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is how did we get to 9,000 hours is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear 
directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. My interview today is with Alice Elliott Dark, author of the novels Fellowship Point and Think of England, and two short story collections, In the Gloaming and Naked to the Waste. Her short story, In the Gloaming, was chosen by John Updike for inclusion in the Best American Short Stories of the Century and was made into films by HBO and Trinity Playhouse. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, Double Take, Plowshares, and A Public Space, among others, and has been translated into many languages. 
Her newest novel, Fellowship Point, tells the story of lifelong neighbors and friends, Agnes and Polly, who own shares in Fellowship Point, a beautiful summer colony and bird sanctuary on the coast of Maine. As they turn 80, it's time to make decisions about what will become of their legacy, a question that threatens their long, close, and peaceful friendship. Fellowship Point looks at the women's lives, loves, families, and work across the 20th century and contains shocking revelations that provide answers to some of the hardest questions they face. We began the interview with Alice Elliott Dark talking about the genesis of Fellowship Point. Quite a few different threads led to making it something that was actually going to happen. Um, The first was the first character that came who was Virgil Reed, which is kind of surprising that he was the first character, but he was the lead into the book and he came into my imagination at a moment when I had no imagination. I mean, I'd really hit rock bottom and I felt like, okay, I have no idea what I'm doing. I had worked on two novels that didn't work. And I just said, you know, I just really went into a place of, okay, forget it. I don't know what I'm doing. And then this was actually at a different residency. And that day I spent the whole day sitting in a chair, looking out the window, doing nothing. And then he popped into my head and I started writing about him and followed him around until he ended up in Maine with a young child. So that was, I knew something was happening because my brain was working in a different way than it ever had before. I knew something was happening, but then the next thing that happened was I saw um, a mini series of, he knew he was right by Anthony Trollope. And I was like, I love these 19th century novels. I love the twists and turns. I love, you know, these big plots, these big cast of characters. I think I'll try to learn how to do that, which was kind of a shocking turn because I didn't, I only wrote poetry till I was 29. You know, I I planned to become a poet. And here I was thinking I want to write a big novel, a 19th century style novel. And then I got the plot a little bit later when I visited a friend in California who works in land trusts and land, um, sort of land, public lands management sort of work. And she told me that in her experience of people who give land to trusts, national parks and so on, many were women. And I found that really fascinating because I'd never heard that before as sort of a phenomenon. I mean, I'd heard of individual cases, but so I did a lot of research about that. And indeed it was true. A lot of the parks where I knew the men who had given land or had founded the park, there were women there too, but who just weren't known or not well known. So then I thought, I wanna write about women landowners. So it was sort of a perfect um, confluence of 19th century novel where there were only male landowners and then, you know, 21st century women landowners and and a, a property plot, a land plot, which I always enjoy. So that's really fascinating because fellowship point at its heart is really about female friendship. So it's interesting that Virgil was the first character who 
I don't want to reduce him to just being a minor character, but he doesn't take up a lot of real estate in the book. He's an important, he's important to be there and we can talk about it. And just to summarize for the listeners, um, fellowship point is really about the friendship between these women, Agnes and Polly, who are in their eighties, who've been friends from childhood on their families had this land in Maine or they, they, um, had attachments to this land in Maine that they in, inherited through their fathers. And it's at this area called Fellowship Point, and that's where they spend their summers. And it's a very magical place for them. It roots them to the land. It roots them to other family members and friends. And then they live in Philadelphia the rest of the year. And Agnes is a writer, and we open with her not being able to write, so she's experiencing some writer's block, and there's a lot that happens. You know, Virgil is a character that, when she was about 40, he came to the land because he was a distant relative and and had a claim on that and came with a young child and was very isolated and aloof, and the child was kind of running wild, and the child's name was Nan, and some subsequent things happen to Nan and Nan ends up being the subject of the books that Agnes writes. And so Mm -hmm. Agnes has this life as a single woman, as a writer, as a feminist, and her best friend Polly takes the other route where she's married. She's more subservient to her husband, Dick. She has three children. And when we, the book opens, we're also learning that there's this kind of trust between um, all the landowners that if, certain numbers sign it away, it can go, the decision of what happens to the land can be more open. Otherwise it just goes to families. So that's, is that a fair assessment of the book? Yeah, that was wonderful. <laughs> it's it's very long. So it's, it's, there's a lot to get in there's and, you, a lot. and you tell it from um, the different points of view, almost, almost exclusively Agnes, but you also have Polly's point of view in there in some chapters. Polly as well. and Maud, the young, the young, editor Maud. Yes. And as her point of view as well. Yeah, we should say um Maud is a young editor who is finds Agnes basically and wants her to write a memoir and is pushing her to write yeah. a memoir. They hadn't met before, but she just picks up on her writing and just for her own ambitions, but also her interest in Agnes wants to represent her. So this idea of Virgil coming first is really interesting. And the book starts with Agnes not being able to write. And you said that you were having trouble writing. So can you talk Mm. about experiencing that like later in your life after you've written a lot, what that was like for you? I think it was because I switched, you know, I switched from poetry to short stories. And then I felt that I was getting pretty good at writing stories and I understood the form. And then there was uh, pressure to write a novel and to keep going with novels, but I really didn't feel like I had gotten on top of that form. And that's what sent me into sort of a, um, you know, a place where I had lost my confidence and uh, yeah, it was disturbing. I didn't know what I was supposed to do about it because I wasn't sure I could just go back to writing stories. And I considered that. And I, I have like a bunch of stories that I've just never placed. I mean, I've never tried to, I just wrote, write them. I do a lot of writing that I just, 
okay, I did that and I don't try to sell it or anything. It's just something I do. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I always had dealt with a lot of writing problems, which I think I have resolved all of them now, which is kind of amazing. Advantage of living for a long time. You know, I used to be a real perfectionist and I'd write a sentence and cross it out, write another. You know, I had pages of just like crossed out completely crossed out, blacked out pages because I just couldn't stand the sound of my own writing. Um, so I went through a lot of writer's block issues, um, but that was a big one. And I really think it was sort of a spiritual conversion moment of just saying, okay, I give up completely. And then, you know, a new character popped in my mind. And it's interesting to think about the book as a female friendship book, because I really didn't myself. Um, I just, female friendships are so deeply embedded into my life and they're so important to me that that was just a natural part of the book that I didn't really think that much about. I thought much more about the land plot and the mechanisms of that and the, you know, having a, um, trying to write about that place, that beautiful land, and then the class situations in that kind of area of Maine, the coastal Maine, where there, there are summer people and then there, there are people who live there. And the, all of those things, things I thought about a lot. Um, but the female friendship part, I just didn't have to think about. <laughs> it was natural. You said when Virgil came into your mind, you had started experiencing like your inspiration or your thoughts for how to do the book in a whole new way than you ever had before. Can you describe that? Yes. I think it was the first time I really felt inhabited by an imaginary space. It's hard to describe exactly, but I, my former work had all had some trigger from the world you know, a story I had heard, a person I knew, something from life. And this was an absolute, it was like a visitation, you know, it was a completely invented character and all the characters are completely invented characters. And it, it really was actually easier to try and, I mean, to have something that just built from the imagination because the imagination has its own logic than to try and impose fiction onto something that I already knew facts about, which I always found a little bit difficult trying to, you know, trying to blend those two. But it was very welcome. I always felt I don't have a big imagination and I wanted one. I think I wanted one for a long time. And then, you know, then it finally happened. So because you got really inspired after, I think it was after you found Virgil and before you talked to your friend, but maybe it was after, um, by these Victorian novels, these big sweeping novels that, that have twists and turns, how did you go about writing this? Because you're, you're saying that you mostly, you know, that you were writing short stories and this book is, it's not just a novel. It's a very long sweeping novel. It's I think mm -hmm. almost 600 pages. So how yeah. did you tame that beast? How did you even start? Well, it was a much bigger beast that, you know, it really was 1600 pages at a certain point. I did it by probably the least efficient 
possible method, which was I just wrote I wrote Virgil a couple of hundred pages, and then he ended up at a place like Fellowship Point. It didn't have the name yet. He ended up at a place where there was some family history, and then Polly appeared, and then Robert's circumstance appeared. You know, characters just started appearing in this place, and then I wrote a whole draft of the book that was just Polly and Robert's circumstance. Robert's circumstance is um, someone who had lived on Fellowship Point when he was a child. His parents were cook and caretaker. And he's grown up to have quite a successful career as a landscape architect, but he still sentimentally takes care of the point and is really close with especially Agnes. But I wrote a whole book about the two of them, about Robert coming out of prison after he had a felony conviction for something that he really didn't do, but and then needing to start over and Polly taking him in. And so it was just the relationship between those two people, which I really liked that version, but it wasn't what I wanted, you know, I, and then Agnes came. So once Agnes came, the book took on a whole different flavor because she is a character big enough to carry a long book. You know, I think with those 19th century novels, they have larger than life characters to hang the whole book on someone who seems to be living in a way that's somehow a little bit out of the range of most people around them, which she is. I mean, she never married. She never had children, which was anomalous in her society. Most of the girls she grew up with were more conventional, including her best friend, Polly. And once I, once I had her, it became a novel. You know, I had her and I had the land plot and I kept track of all of it. Not very well. <laughs> That's all I can say. I, you know, I just had files and files in my computer. A lot of times I'd be saying, which is the most recent one? I'm not sure. It wasn't, it was not an efficient process, but eventually I tamed it by going to another residency where I laid the whole book out on the floor in piles and just started winnowing down and putting it in a linear order because I hadn't written linearly. And then I began to see the plot, but that was a lot of refinement. You know, I, I really felt I learned so much about writing from writing this book about how to create and sustain a central argument and to sort of make choices about what's going to stay and what's going to leave based on that. Can you explain more what you mean by a central argument in fiction? I think most fiction makes some sort of an argument. It could be called the central theme, which I think is from the reader point of view. But I think from the writer point of view, you're making a case. You know, you're making a case for people are good or people are evil or, you know, money, money is um, either it's neutral or else it's something that can be you know really destructive a destructive for you know you're making you're making a, an argument about your world view and through the book and i think most books have like a central argument and then minor arguments alongside and those are the subplots that are like the minor 
the minor arguments that buttress the, the central argument and then intersect at a certain point. It took me a while to see that when I was learning how to write and teaching too. But once I saw that there is a case being made, then that made it a lot easier to decide what was relevant to the case and what was not. And how does that fit in with this idea, and I don't know if you subscribe to it, that part of writing is to discover what you think? I don't think about anything like that early on. You know, I don't I don't plan ahead. I don't I really do believe in writing first drafts or part at least parts of first drafts completely intuitively and just see what comes out see what's in there and then start to look at the clues. Like when I work with my students, you know, I'll look at their story and I say, oh, I feel like uh, something's happening right here. And it can just be a word or it can be a phrase where I feel a certain amount of energy that's a little bit different from maybe the context around it. And then I think, oh, that's a clue. That's a clue to what they're really thinking about or what they really want to write about. And it's the same for me. You know, I write a lot and then I look back at it and I think, oh, here's where I'm getting close to the bone and what I'm really what I'm really writing about. Um, And then I just start to explore it like every single day when I sit down to write, I write at the top of my notebook. I have a little companion notebook to the book. What is this book about? And then I answer the question and it changes and changes and changes and changes until I get to the very final stages of the book. But it's a really useful thing for me to do because I could say, you know, it's about um, how stupid I think it is that people own property. You know, that could be like, and often there's like an emotional charge to what I think it's about. I think that's stupid. Um, But then the next day, it could be about um, how important I think it is for people who have relationships to keep trying to maintain the relationship, even if there's conflict, which happens in the book between Agnes and Polly. You know, it could be that. That's what I'm interested. So there's a lot of little, you know, all of those things, I think, add up to a larger argument about how I think, how I think, and, you know, this is obviously subjective, but how I think we should behave in the world towards both nature and each other, you know, and that's the larger argument, a certain kind of respect, integrity, um, care, all of those things. And I'm making I'm making that case over the course of the book where you see people come closer and closer to being able to fulfill those values in their lives. Um, you know, it's one reason I made them 80, because I think a lot of things take a long time to really settle in, in terms of higher values you might learn when you're young, but you just simply aren't able to enact them for many, many reasons, until you have a lot of experience where you can control your behavior, you control your thoughts better, all of those things. So it sounds like, if I'm hearing you right, that when you're writing 
all these initial drafts, you're, you're exploring those questions, but when you're knitting them all together, that's when you're starting to look for consistency in that argument, in that theme. Yeah. Yes. I'm starting to, you know, I, I, I would say if I said, what's this book about to me, I would say this book fellowship point is about, can people change, you know, can they change or can they not change? I was just reading about succession that Jesse Armstrong wrote the whole show. People are incapable of change. So they're going to be the same at the end as they are at the beginning. I'm taking the exact opposite. People can change. And, you know, these are the series of events that happen to these particular people that they go through the experience they learn from or not. You know, sometimes they don't, but they go through these series of experience and they all lead up to them being in a sort of emotional, spiritual situation where they can change. They can do things differently than they did before. And it's not a huge change. It's not like a TV kind of change. It's just sort of a a shift, a shift in perspective or spirit where they can just turn they can turn towards a different direction and make, you know, and see things more clearly. Like at the end of the book, I won't say what happens, but at the end of the book, Agnes has a a very clear vision of what should happen with the land. And I felt like it needed to be a really long book for her to get to that place. It's not like an idea you can just think up, you know, it was like an idea that she had to work toward by having many things happen to her. You wrote this whole book, I don't know how many drafts, with just Polly and Robert and Virgil. And then Agnes came. And it, mm-hmm. that's really fascinating because she is the central character. Her voice okay. is almost all of the book. I mean, it's not in first person, but we're very close to her. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious then, because you said it was 1,600 pages and she came in later, how you did sort of fuse all these stories. Cause it sounds like you weren't going to just throw away some of the work you had done earlier. So you wrote Agnes and then you had to sort of merge all that together. And and you said you went to this fellowship and you, you physically saw it, but how do you do that where maybe the stitching isn't obvious to a reader? Like, Um, Because you want it to flow in a certain way, whereas you know they were disparate parts before. I think I pretty much don't try to stitch it together. I just rewrite it. You know, I had all this writing about each of these characters. I had a lot of scenes with them together. Some of them, I mean, a lot of the scenes were just seeing what they were like. I've never done the kind of character lists that you see in writing books like you know, write all these things, write a list of things about the character, where they went to school, what their pet was, blah, blah, blah. I've never done that. I've done, I figured out who they are by putting them in situations. And sometimes there's situations that I are stock situations that I use just for this purpose, like see how they would react in this moment. But some of them are putting two of them together and just seeing what they say to each other. Then I learn who they are. So a lot of the writing I did out of that 1,600 pages was 
understanding what I'm writing about and who these people are. And then as as it became clear to me what the book was going to be, then I just started writing again from the beginning. So I think very few of the scenes that are in the final version of the book are scenes that were in that 1600 pages that I had in 2014. You know, that's when I like, okay, now I see what I've been doing. I started in 2011. By 2014, I had like all these pages. And then I went back and started from the beginning. And I'm doing the same thing now with the novel I'm writing. I've I've got lots and lots of material that I've written over the years about these particular characters. And I'm just not, I'm not trying to shoehorn any of it into the book. I'm just starting from the beginning, but I've done all that. So then I can write fairly quickly. You know, I don't have to write like the draft I'm writing now. I'm sure I'll write another draft or two, but it's pretty solid because all that back writing is behind me. And I know what I know what it's about. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash first draft writers. So Agnes in your book is a writer. She writes uh-huh. um, these children's books, but she also secretly writes adult books that she has a pen name for that she that no one in her life knows who uh-huh. that person really is. And you say you have a line in the book where you're talking about fiction and you write, she didn't moralize or preach. The project is of fiction was in essence dramatic. And so I wanted to ask you about writing this and and that in reference to this idea that you were taken by this Victorian sort of novel. So what we're talking about this book, there's so much that happens. There's, you know, Robert going to jail. There's drama with families. There's sickness, death, um, mysteries, twists and of fate, um, coincidences that are, you know, Dickinsonian, like, yeah, very much. I just wanted to ask you kind of Dickens. Yeah, about the dramatic um the dramatic and and putting that in cuz a Victorian novel is not like the novels we read today. No. When I was learning how to write fiction, I really had like a a revelation of that my boring stories that I was writing What was wrong with them was that I didn't understand that fiction is dramatic, that, you know, you can't just like when I say make an argument, you can't you can't make the argument intellectually. You know, you can't say like in a sermon you do, you know, you just say what it is that you are trying to get across in fiction. You have to dramatize it. You know, it, and the reader has to figure it out. You know, you're not telling them to think a certain way. You're showing them scene, 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 and and how people are behaving and what human nature is like, what what people are led to do in certain situations, and then they start to add it up. You know, you don't do that for the you don't do that for the reader. You engage them so that they start doing it. And I think ideally. You know, if you write a great like the the books that I consider to be great books, you are changed by doing that work of reading. 
you know, by putting together um, what the, you know, what the author is giving you in these dramatic scenes, the substance, sort of the aquifer of what's going on under those scenes, you're doing the work of, oh, you know, now I understand this, now I understand this now. And often it, it really does change you to read a great book. You know, you really feel like maybe um, uplifted in a way that is a reference point. Like, oh, I'm capable of feeling, you know, this this inspired or this um, uplifted or the other way. Like, let's say Thomas Hardy or something who, you know, drives his characters into ruin over and over and over again. He doesn't he doesn't have. um sort of the salvation redemption model. He has the other model, which I think is equally valid. But again, reading the story of someone who just makes wrong decision after wrong decision after wrong decision, I think, you know, you come away from it feeling sober in a way that can be a change, you know, that you can see patterns differently and maybe patterns in your own life. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that fiction's sort of instructive. I'm just saying it works in a way that especially a long book because you're spent, you know, you're living through time as you're reading a long book. And that amount of time that it takes to read a long book also has an effect of change on the reader. Is there a book that you think changed you the most? Oh, I mean, there have been so many that, I, you know, probably the books I read when I was really little um, changed me the most because it was my first encounter with reading and with understanding what a book could do. Probably the book that really changed me the most was called A Stone for Danny Fisher by Erwin Shaw, which I read when I was about 10. And I suddenly understood what writing was from reading that book because it's a first person book. Um, it's, it's his autobiographical book. He went on to become sort of a, um, a popular kind of writer, but this book was really profound, a profound uh, fictional autobiography about becoming a prize fighter to work his way out of poverty. And he has a technique in there that really, I don't know why, but like, it just like hit me like so hard where if he's writing a scene that he, that the character doesn't experience as a first person character, he writes, I wasn't there when dot, dot, dot. And I was like, Oh my God, that's amazing. Like you can, and, and I wasn't even really, I mean, I was writing at that point when I was 10, but I mean, obviously my writing at that point was nothing at all, but I was thinking about it, you know, I was thinking about it and I was always like reading, looking how they did it because reading would make me so excited and happy that I did have the feeling that I wanted to do that too. You know, I wanted to write something that would make people feel the way I felt when I read a book. And then when I saw that technique, I was like, I mean, it was years before I really understood anything about craft or technique. I'm not trying to make myself sound precocious, but I was so struck by that. I knew like I had seen something, like I had seen behind the curtain when I read that book. 
uh, and it did really affect me. But there have been so many, uh, there have been so many books that I've been profoundly changed by. I think in recent times, Upstream by Mary Oliver, which is a collection of essays, it's just, it's just so beautiful and so compressed. She writes essays about her favorite authors that have affected her and also about nature. And every time I read it, I really can go from feeling very absorbed in my own small world. And I read one of those essays and I'm like, the whole world opens up. You know, I see how gorgeous this world we live in is and how, you know, the drama of creation and all of that. And these are really short essays, but I just think so, so effective and amazing. I'm curious then, because you were so influenced by these big ideas, you know, even in in books for that are written for a 10 year old, um, how you decided to go into poetry, which is a very compressed language, which holds so much truth. I mean, it's so metaphorical and imagistic to writing a 600 page novel. Like how, how did, how were you drawn to poetry at first, which is so spare compared to what you're doing now? I don't know exactly. I just was, I think um, from at school when we learned the sonnet form, which is probably in ninth grade, you know, we were asked to write a sonnet and I just was like, Oh, I love this so much. It's like solving a puzzle, but, you know, having to really be very clear about what you want to say and then having a rhyme scheme, which I thought was fun and you know, I read a lot of poetry when I was young. I just, I really loved it. And it was, um, you know, when I read something like How by Allen Ginsberg or when I was reading translated or Gary Snyder's like sort of loose translations of Chinese poetry, these all affected me so deeply. I think I just, uh, I wanted to be able to do something Yeah, I wanted to be able to do something that was that succinct, as opposed to a really long book. Um, I also just, it just came to me. You know, I was one of those teenagers who would stay up all night and have black candles and and just like write poetry in the middle of the night um, that felt as though I was having some sort of mystical experience. You know, it felt like I... It was coming from somewhere else. Um, and that was exciting, too. I wonder if Agnes did that when she was a teenager. I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I don't think I think she really started writing uh, when she was in her 20s and. For real, and she came, you know, she. She really started writing as a response to. Having going through a relationship that ended and it ended um, with a huge amount of both disappointment and insight on her part as to relations between men and women and power dynamics between men and women. And then she went home at age 24 and she just went up to her room and wrote a book. And it really was, it really was like 
Mary McCarthy's The Group kind of book, you know, about her friends and seeing her friends who she'd known as really vibrant, smart girls because she went to a girl's school, you know, in a girl's school, you don't, you're not constantly seeing yourself with males. You're seeing yourself as a, you know, as a pack of girls. And it's very different. I went to a girl's school and I, you know, I'm, it's like the best thing that ever happened to me really, but she sees them start to get married, start to take jobs that are you know, where they have to be extremely subservient and um, have to, you know, just have to start pulling themselves in, reining themselves in, becoming more compliant, becoming more pleasing. And it really, really bugs her because that is not her personality. So she just writes a book about it. And I think really that was her first real desire to write. And I think that that's the case with a lot of people. They just suddenly are passionately moved by some injustice or some form of, um, you know, some form of societal response or anger, and they can sort of pour out a book. But then she decides to keep going. She writes one of those books every decade. What's happening to her girls <laughs> as they grow older? And then she she comes to this point of. Um, writer's block. And, you know, you get to this later in the book, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler, but she realizes that her writer's block is that her characters are now in their 80s, and one of them is going to have to die. And she just can't face that. She doesn't realize at first that that's why she's blocked. But eventually she sees, oh, I can't. I I don't want to do that. She does, though. Where did you grow up and why was going to a girls' school one of the best things that ever happened to you? I grew up outside of Philadelphia and I went to a school named Shipley. I think just because it was a very intellectual place. We had teachers who, in the upper school, we had teachers who were PhDs from Bryn Mawr College who, at that time, there were not university positions for women, except as, you know, as adjuncts or whatever. There weren't tenure track jobs for women um, at universities. I was just lucky to be exposed to these people, these great headmistresses who I think, if anything, those are the inspiration for Agnes. I always think Agnes is like a mother superior, but she's also like a headmistress at one of these girls schools where it's like, it's a big job that draws on a lot of character in a person. And I just happened to have a couple of really good ones while I was there. Of course, they're terrible ones too. But yeah, I just liked going to school and not thinking about how do I look? Do I have to fight to get my voice in edgewise? I was just talking to someone recently about when we all went to college and college with boys. And then my first, you know, my first freshman year, I just thought, God, men are just not intellectual at all. Like they just want to get their voice in, you know, they're not trying to do this thing that I had sort of learned to do at school, which was like to build a conversation and to contribute and to make something into a bigger structure and not to just refute, 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 you know, 
Yeah, it took me a while to get over that. <laughs> it took me a while to say, oh, okay, maybe they maybe they can do some stuff too. But um, it really was just a, a place of great intellectual freedom. And I think I had a particularly smart class and some some of the women in that class have done amazing things with their lives and were really inspirational to me as being so smart. But yeah, it was just that. I mean, there were, you know, it was a time, I was young in a time when options for girls were still in, you know, it, it they were very in flux. And just not having to face anything until I was 18 was very good. I, I was able to feel, I also, I've always trusted and loved women. You know, when I got to college and, and other girls would tell me that they had had a lot of conflict with girls at school and there was a lot of backbiting and there was jealousy and there, I was like, oh my God, I'm so glad I missed all of that. I really am. <laughs> it just has been a fairly clear path for me to have, you know, very rich relationships so you were saying that, you know, Agnes was kind of like a headmistress. And you also said earlier that you needed a character that was very large to carry a book where a lot of time passes and where she can change over time. And Agnes is, you know, without a doubt, she's a feminist, but she she is in no way, I don't find her sentimental or emotional. She's very logical about things and her Nan books that she writes about this young girl, people look at it and say, you know, she's so feminist. And she's like, well, I'm just portraying a girl and they run around and they're tomboys. And so there's a no nonsense quality to how she sees the world. And it isn't like necessarily precious. She just looks and say like, why are you subjugating yourself to a man? Like she, she, exactly. makes, um, yeah. so I'm curious. Yeah, she says I'm not a feminist. I'm an egalitarian. I'm curious about building her character and also why, for a strong feminist, she hid who she was for these books she was writing called Franklin Square, where she is making, I don't know, I, I haven't read her books, um, some scathing or very, very keen observations about women's place in society. I think she got the advice about her first book. It wasn't really advice, but when she showed it to an editor, he said, you're never going to be able to show your face in Philadelphia again uh, when this is published. And that was the time, the first time it occurred to her that people were actually going to read it, which I think is very common with writers. And, you know, you're alone in your room and you kind of forget um, exactly the impact your work could have. I think memoirists get in trouble with this a lot because they, they, lose track of reaction and she got that message and she said oh that's really true and um it wasn't so much that she wanted to be able to stay in society because that really wasn't important to her but she wanted to be able to move freely when she was in Philadelphia and go to go to the places that she was used to going and being able to pick up the you know the gossip the things that were happening to these to the young women that she grew up with who her who her characters are based on so i think at first it was out of a little bit of of fear of what could happen to her as a young woman putting out 
like a fairly an expose sort of and then it was a convenience like i can have both i can write these books and also not be held to account by my group for them and she she really wasn't the type of person who wanted or needed fame fame she did need money you know, when she turns 40, she finds out that she has to make money, which was a little bit of a shocker. Um, and she does it by writing the Nan books. But even with the Nan books, you know, she's it's the book says like that the kind of wasp society she grew up in just thought they were a hobby. They didn't really. It's like, oh, she's, you know, there's Agnes just off like drawing these little drawings and <laughs> which which is really quite possible. Is there anything else you want to say about building her character? You know, it was a process of, again, putting her in scenes with other people and seeing what she was like and just letting her, just letting her develop. Like, it, I, you know, and you see a part in the book from 1960 to 1963 when she's 40 to 43 and she does fall in love with someone. And I worked on that part quite a bit. Like, what happens? Um, is it mutual? Is it not mutual? Like, how does that how does that whole event go? So I did it by trial and error. That's really how I built her. I was like, how can I keep her true to who I think she is, and have this experience? Because there's part of it's like the the experience of falling in love. You know, there's that is pulling on me as a writer. Like, should I let her have like the full experience of being in love with this person and have sex and everything? Or should I just stick to her as I know her and have the, you know, the plot fall out around that? And it's, it is a little trial and error for me. I did write scenes where she had sex and all of it. It's not, and then she doesn't. I just built her by trial and error. Like what was going to work for the book? We talked or just mentioned earlier about the the influence of Dickens. And you, your book does have a, a, a pretty big twist that happens that you don't see those kind of twists as much in contemporary literature. So I'm wondering if you felt nervous or that it was a risk to do that and... Yes. Kind, kind of your conviction to do it. <laughs> I did. I did feel it was a risk. Um, and I did feel nervous. But I wanted to go for it. I really just wanted to go for it. It seemed like it totally fit the book. Um, and another factor went into that, which was when I was at college, I was a Chinese major. And Something I learned under those circumstances was that in um, Chinese literature still, you still see it in Chinese movies like Zhang Yima, the great director. He always has a major coincidence in his movies. And that in Chinese literature, the coincidence um, was considered to be a very high literary technique. Like if you could... If you could bring two characters who knew each other in, you know, time A, have them cross paths again in time B, way down the road, 
so satisfying to the audience, exciting. Um, and also, you know, I think true to life because those things happen in real life. It it has gone out of fashion and fiction to really do it. Um, but I I just I wanted to try it and I I I I like it. I like what the way it worked. There's you know, some people have read the book and have noticed the clues that I've dropped along the way and have um figured it out ahead of time. But a lot of people are surprised and then they go back and look for the cruise clues. Some people didn't like it. They're just like this kind of thing never happens. Not true. Um, things like this happen a lot. But yeah, I just, you know, it was a challenge for me and it was fun to try and figure out how to do it. It took some doing. Did you have to negotiate that with your editor at all or your editor was like, go for it? Well, it was really my agent I was talking to about it. And he was, you know, he thought it was a cool idea to do it. He was encouraging. He realized that also, you know, his attitude was like, if you can pull it off, go for it. And I was like, I'm really going to try to pull it off. Uh, I want to do it. And if it hadn't, if I felt like I hadn't pulled it off and that it wasn't a value, I would have let it go. But in the end, I did think it was good. And I think I've gotten a lot of um, emails from people who really loved it. You know, they loved having like a big surprise. So I'm sure there are people who feel the opposite, but they are not speaking to me as much about it. (laughs) Is that hard to hear or know that people don't like that? It's not hard to hear because I just think you, you read a book at a certain moment in your life and whether you're open to something like that, I can't control that. I also, there are clues and, you know, I think people who, who've read it and noticed the clues, it's, it's, it's built. It's not like it's a sudden, it's not like I pull a fast one, you know, it's built up to, but if you're reading a certain way and you don't notice those clues, then it can feel like, oh my God, where did this come from? But I think if you have a lot of experience in reading and you see like there's this young woman, Maud, and she, you know, everything about her and her history and how she's grown up reading those books and her, you know, I won't go into it. But I think if you understand how books work, you're going to be like, well, there's something about her storyline that's going to be more than just the surface. There's something there. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Can you read a passage from an author that influences you as a writer? Yes. Yes. So this is from, this is the opening of the interior castle by Jean Stafford, and I absolutely love her writing. Um, I'm just going to read about half of the first paragraph. Pansy Vanneman, injured in an automobile accident, often woke up before dawn when the night noises of the hospital still came and hushed hurry through her half-open door. By day, when the nurses talked audibly about the interns, 
laughed without inhibition, and took no pains to soften their footsteps on the resounding composition floors. The routine of the hospital seemed as bland and commonplace as that of a bank or a factory. But in the dark hours, the whispering and the quickly stilled clatter of glasses and basins, the moans of patients whose morphine was wearing off, the soft squeak of a stretcher as it rolled past in its way from the emergency ward, these suggested agony and death. Thus, on the first morning, Pansy had faltered to consciousness long before daylight and had found herself in a ward from every bed of which, it seemed to her, came the bewildered protest of someone about to die. I just find that so funny. I mean, it's, you know, it's like a way of of writing a tone, getting at a tone that I think is um, sort of wry and arch, which I love. I don't love irony, um, but I like arch. You know, I like um, taking, having a character like her who there's both a lot of sympathy for her, but there's also watching how she reacts to things and her a little bit melodramatic. And the whole story is about her. She has to have surgery on her broken nose and she's just so worried about what's going to happen to her brain. What if the doctor slips? And it's really an amazing story because it's called The Interior Castle, which is Saint Saint Teresa of Avila's story of her her spiritual memoir, the Interior Castle, and this woman has conceives of her brain as sort of this. There's lots of different words for it. Um, I also love the detail. You know, it's just building the story through an accumulation of detail, and then her interpretation of the detail, and also the narrator's interpretation. It's a really good example of a point of view shifting back and forth between authorial and the protagonist's point of view, even within a sentence. It's just so, so well done. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you like? Yes. Um, I picked a passage from... Fellowship Point, um, which is close to the beginning of the book, and it's where I give brief background of the point, the history of the point. And um, it took me a long time to condense it because it involved a huge amount of research. (laughs) Um, Okay, so there are two brothers, William Lee and Edgar Lee, They're Quakers. This is about 1870. Edgar Lee envisioned a complex the size of a city block where rather than each factory attending to an aspect of a final product, milling, weaving, dyeing, and cutting could all be done under one roof with no other owner gaining from the process. William saw the advantage to be had in the idea, but argued against it. How could workers ever save enough from their wages to buy the factory from the owner and become owners themselves if faced with purchasing a massive operation? The brothers stared at each other across a gulf of difference. Edward was a solid, civic-minded American capitalist whose business acumen was sufficiently bifurcated from his moral perceptions that he managed to believe that the lives of those who toiled for his riches were within a national 
a natural order and always fair. And William saw himself as an educated American man whose lack of constraint and easy path in life afforded egalitarian visions. They couldn't see themselves in their positions clearly enough to dig to the bottom of their difference, which was rooted in personality, a subject that men of their ilk weren't trained to discuss. Instead, they argued about the preamble, specifically the pursuit of happiness. So I felt like this um, this passage took me a really long time to condense so much about their different attitudes towards business, which have um, which were really interesting, you know, doing research about business history in Philadelphia, which developed very differently than any other city in the in the states in their business practices and their attitudes about, you know, is it fair that people work in a factory can never make enough money to buy the factory? You know, can they, you know, one brother thinks, yes, that's the natural order. The other brother thinks, no, you know. This the setup should be that um, people can get ahead, and I really felt that this was sort of a mirror for differences between Agnes and Polly too, just in their basic points of view about things. And uh, they do better than William and Edgar in that they don't just talk about the preamble to the Constitution and what the pursuit of happiness means, which I found very funny, but. Um, you know, they do better at learning how to talk to each other more directly and about the differences between them. Where do you write? I write in my bedroom. Um, I live in a small house and I wish I had a dedicated room, but maybe, maybe that's unnecessary because I never have had. And so I write in my bedroom and on a table looking out the window where I see little, the little plots of the next few houses, you know, going off into the distance and a few trees. And I, that um, view has become sort of a trigger to writing. I look out that window and then I get in that frame of mind. If I'm not there, I carry around a plastic table in my car that I can just throw up anywhere and um, grab a chair. And or, yeah, I have a little, my my to-go office, I have a desk lamp and a table in the back of my car that, you know, if I go somewhere, I take with me. Um, but I do find that at this stage, I need silence. I can't do the Starbucks writing anymore. I can't, you know, I used to be able to do that. I can't anymore. I just want real solitude. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? You know, the whole rest of my life is away from writing. I don't really think about my writing when I'm not doing it. I'm not one of these people who thinks about it all day. And that I was cured of by having a child who if I was thinking about my writing, he would get very agitated because he knew my mind was not on him. So I learned to not think about my writing unless I was doing it. But I have a job. I teach at Rutgers Newark. I take walks. I have pets. I have friends. You know, I just do all the regular things. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show it to my son who is a really good reader 
he went to, he just finished an MFA program and had just finished his first novel. Um, and we show each other work. Um, and I show it to my husband. My husband's a cheerleader. And, you know, I usually ask him for thumbs up, thumbs down. My son is much more strict with my husband doesn't want to go there because, <laughs> you know, we are married. But my son is, you know, he'll say, Mom, this is this beginning doesn't work. It's boring. It's, you know, he's much more. Uh, so he's much more straightforward. And it took us a long time to get like a very productive relationship where we could just be absolutely 100 percent honest about the writing. But it's now we have it and it's really great. How have you dealt with rejection? I am not good at dealing with rejection. Um, at least I didn't used to be. It, it used to really hurt me. At this point, I it depends what kind of rejection. Like if I get a bad review or something, I think about it. You know, I think, is there something to be learned from this? Like, are they saying something valid? And sometimes they are, and then I'm appreciative. Um, but if it's if it's sort of ad hominem, which I've gotten sometimes, like about being a wasp or something like that, <laughs> I, you know, I just feel like, oh, that was a waste of time for them and for me. You know, there's valid criticism, but that's very different from just rejection. I get, you know, all writers get rejections. I send, I send pieces out. They, they're not taken. That I just take as a matter of course. I don't think about it anymore. I'm just like next. Thank you next, as Ariana Grande said. Yes, thank you next. <laughs> and what is your favorite word? My favorite word is interstate. Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Mitzi. This has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed it. If you like today's show with Alice Elliott Dark, author of Fellowship Point, check out my interview with Lily King on her novel Euphoria. We talked about writing as a form of anthropology, writing biographies of each of her characters, and figuring out a novel as you read and write it. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 415 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jennifer Groats, Buzzy Jackson, and David Vandenberg. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. 
The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.